0: Welcome to Conversations With. My name is Shaylee Hugendorn and I live with Bipolar two Disorder. Sharing with others is healing both individually and collectively. Sharing our stories will educate others, bring more understanding, shed more light and smash more stigma. Our voices need to be heard. Our stories aren't over yet. This is Bipolar. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to This is Bipolar. I'm really, really excited today. Before we get started, if you haven't heard before, I am Shaylee Hugendorn. I am a mama, I'm a wife, I am an elementary school teacher, and I am a fierce. Let's go with that. Mental illness advocate. And um, I live with bipolar two disorder. I live in uh, Vancouver, Canada, also the unceded uh, territory of the Casey and the Kwikwetlem peoples. And I wanted to announce something super special and super exciting and also completely terrifying for me. So I know if you've been here for a while, you've been, I've been talking about Patreon. I've been talking about how I have all this extra content. And then I also talk about how that is very hard for me to actually put myself out there in that way. So Instagram has offered me subscriptions. So because most of you all are there, I am offering subscriptions and I'm going to have all the extra things, including I'm going to do two lives a month for just exclusive for subscribers. And then for the past like almost a year, I have recorded um, extra calling it going deeper with each podcast guest that you will have access to. And a extra, they call them channels, if you've seen them, that will have a channel where you'll have direct access to asking me things and I can give, uh, you know, my best tips and tricks with my lived experience. So I hope you'll sign up. I think it's, like six ninety dollars US dollars a month and it would really help me be able to do more on the podcast and just fund um, more projects I want to do and just the podcast um, because I haven't done funding in, in the entire three years. So please, please, please join me there. I would love that. Now I want to get started with uh, a special, special guest. We have been trying to record this podcast for a couple months, and the day is finally here. So, my friend Oliver, could you tell us a little bit about who you are?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I'm actually gonna <clears throat> I'm actually gonna read it from my bio. Otherwise, I forget everything.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, That's what I love it. Yeah, why
1: not, eh? But at least I'll tell everyone so they know I don't just speak really strangely. <laughs> Um, and, and stiltedly, um, at the age of 17, I was, uh, experienced manic and depressive episodes, and I ended up in the Royal Edinburgh Psychiatric Hospital, where I was diagnosed with manic depression, as it was back then. Having lived with bipolar type one for nearly 35 years, I decided to write a book about my experiences called befriending bipolar, a patient's perspective. Befinding Bipolar is a story of hope. It tells of the highs and the lows, the wild experiences, the friendships, interactions with psychiatrists and psychologists, and my my battles to come off medication and find different medication. But most importantly, uh, it talks about how I eventually found peace with bipolar and how things really started to change when I accepted that I had a, a mental illness. I've also written another book called The Broker Who Broke Free, uh, which is about my journey with bipolar meditation and finding peace. It's a more lighthearted book and uh, quite a fun read, I'm told. For the last 20 years, I've been traveling all over the world teaching Ascension Meditation and I'm currently studying for a master's in the psychology of mental health. I like to laugh, I try not to take myself or life too seriously, and I've really learned to enjoy the simple pleasures of life that's me.
0: That's you. I love it. I love it so much. Um, Yeah, I am really excited to tell uh, people more about your book. As you can see, if you're uh, watching, I'm holding up the book and I have a whole bunch of pages folded. And um, if you're listening, that is what it looks like. Um, I would love to Oh, and if you wanted the book, I'm going to put all the links in the show notes. So please go follow Oliver and get the book and read it. I have read a lot of memoirs, like a lot of bipolar memoirs. And I can say this is very, very, very well written. And I just loved one of my favorite parts of the book is at the end of every chapter, um, you have a section called learnings. And it kind of reviews because if I am, both when I'm manic and depressed, sometimes um, my short-term memory, remembering like uh, the takeaways, because I think everything's important, was was really helpful, it was really helpful to me. And then we can you can go back to the book um, whenever you need to. So I will be keeping that at my bedside um, to remind myself of all the things and remind myself to befriend my bipolar. So to get started Oliver could you let's start from the beginning because it is it's becoming more um it's becoming uh more common to be diagnosed earlier but at your age, it it wasn't like they weren't diagnosing or giving the diagnosis, at least over here, um, to teens, etc. So I would love to hear, let's start from the beginning, when you started to notice that something was different? And what led up to your um, diagnosis?
1: Well, I noticed when I was very small, that I found it really hard to relax. And I was really quite neurotic. I was afraid of a lot of things. I had a lot of confidence and i could kind of hold the attention of a room and i loved showing off and so i loved that kind of outward side of life but there was also a lot of insecurity with it and as i kind of grew up i noticed that my friends could relax but i never felt i could relax mm. i always felt my mind was on the go on the go on the go and uh, and i was afraid a lot i i sort of learned to push through it so that it didn't affect my life too badly but i i experienced a lot of fear And then I think when I got to about 17, I was in my last year of school and we have these big uh, exams in the UK called A Levels. And um, I should have spent the the Easter holidays doing some revision and kind of preparing for these exams. But I started to think that I was really far too clever to need to revise. And of course I do brilliantly and I was very gifted and and having uh, even more overinflated thoughts than I usually had about myself back then. And that then continued. And I went back to to school and about two or three days into the term, it just hit me. It was like, oh, my God, my first exam is in a week and I haven't opened up any textbooks. And so this kind of what had been a really fun, euphoric, enjoyable mania that had built up and built up and built up. It kind of crashed into what I what I call in the book, I call an agitated mania, because for me, there's a real difference between that kind of mania where we're, we're riding on these feelings of bliss and love. And we really just, you know, we think we're Jesus or, you know, who knows how far I can go. Yeah. But there's a huge difference between that. And then when my mind got really involved with the negativity and the, the paranoia and the agitation. And so I sort of jumped into this agitated mania, which got worse and worse and worse through my exams. And then afterwards, I remember my mum saying to me, you know, you should just come home and, and rest and I couldn't do it. I went home and I was just go, 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 go. And I ended up going um, with some friends on holiday to a place called Cornwall in England for a sort of beach holiday. And that was a disaster. And I ended up coming home on the train, having uh, offended everyone and pissed everyone off and Mm -hmm. stolen money from a friend and stolen another guy's car and hidden it in a a parking lot and just really pushed, pushed the boundaries. And on the train home, I just kind of collapsed into the beginning of a depression mm-hmm. and I jumped off the train because I couldn't just take being alone by myself. And I, I turned myself into the police and that was kind of how, how my diagnosis began mm-hmm. because after that, I ended up in the Royal Edinburgh Psychiatric Hospital and they, they diagnosed me with, with manic depression as it was back then. And it was pretty, um, it was pretty obvious. That's, that's what I had. Yeah.
0: Wow. Wow, that, uh, yeah, it's interesting how, um, how stressors can bring it out um, in the, you know, in the beginning and all throughout. Um, You touched on something that I thought was really important in the book. And I, I just think our listeners would benefit from going deeper with that. And even if you're listening, and you love someone with bipolar disorder, these are things um, to watch out for. I wonder if you could go in more detail of the three different um levels of mania that you just uh, mentioned and maybe give examples of what that looked like what maybe that felt like in your body what it might have looked like in your actions i would love to hear about that
1: yeah did you want the three levels of, of mania or depression yeah
0: could we do that
1: cool what well, um in the book i think i talk about i think i talk about two levels of mania okay um which no that's cool I mean that's basically what I've sort of been talking about it's the difference between sort of feeling great but being completely ungrounded and and obviously um although the feelings are wonderful and, and our internal experience can be really really enjoyable it can also be very dangerous because we lose touch with reality we potentially lose touch with uh any kind of Limiting our risks or decision making, you know, it's the kind of experience where I think people, or where I've spent a lot of money or been very promiscuous um, or just being very, very, um, just making ridiculously poor choices because I think I'm superhuman.
0: Yeah.
1: So that's one. That's the euphoric mania that that I write about, and then the second one is the the agitated mania, which I think is, it's it's probably quite close to a mixed episode but it's where we have this exaggerated ideas of of what we can do and what we should be doing, but there's a lot of internal pressure and it's not really an enjoyable experience. It's more like our mind is just hammering us and hammering us and hammering us. And and in those states, I I found it very, very hard to, to deal with life, but I had all this energy. So in some ways I was depressed because I really did not like myself at all and I didn't like being alive, but I had so much energy so I would try to go to sleep and I couldn't. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to these experiences.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. And um, yeah, I love how you talked about how it can be like beautiful and exciting. And uh, you know, it's just, I've heard that actually in brain scans or, or sciencey stuff, I'm not sciencey that it, it you're in a bit, inhibitions have just lowered right so maybe we've had these thoughts before or these ideas maybe you know oh i'd like to whatever we think that even without experience we could 100% do that and i was wondering if you would talk about um how some of the ideas that you had about yourself during this time because i know you talked a lot um about just having the secrets of the universe and thinking everybody was wrong and maybe thinking that you were a god or jesus or i would love for people to understand um, and just hear about your experience with that because for some people it sounds you know so way out there and it is for you know a neurotypical brain but this is actually really common with bipolar 1 and um i have experienced because i have bipolar 2 with hypomania i've experienced it on kind of a smaller level where i thought i was a famous like matchmaker and so i went like literally knocked on neighbors doors a couple of them and like matched them with other neighbors and like tried to sit them down and it's so embarrassing now but um but i was convinced you could not tell me otherwise or it's very hard to talk to someone that's hypomanic or manic about their outrageous ideas because we just think, oh, they don't they don't know the secret or they don't they're not as intelligent or or whatever. Could you tell us like um an actual experience of um because you write about some in the book that are so fascinating?
1: Yeah, I it's it's interesting because I've noticed I have a lot of friends and, and I've met a lot of people with bipolar. And um, it's interesting how many of our experiences are similar. You know, it's almost like in some ways, it's almost like an archetypal mental yeah. illness where certain aspects of the ego or the subconscious are taken and they get kind of thrust into an, an experience. And so some of, the, some of the ones that I experienced were, um, for example, I knew the secrets of the universe. I understood, you know, people in spirituality, they talk about everything is one. Well, I knew that and so I understood it. And I remember trying to explain it to my dad and getting really frustrated because he didn't get it and thinking exactly what you said. God, so stupid. Why doesn't anyone get it? Why don't the nurses get it? You know, so there is this kind of overinflated belief in whatever I saw as true in that in the moment, um, which obviously didn't uh, didn't lead uh, to particularly sort of great relationships at the time. It put a lot of pressure on that, uh, particularly because it came with this totally unintentional arrogance. You know where I really thought I I, I knew what was best. Um, I also, I mean, I had a lot of experiences where um, with money. You know, I inherited uh, quite a lot of money from from a relative, and at the same time, I finished my job in in this trading company in London. So, I, and and they paid me off, you know, to leave. And um, they actually they offered everyone the money. They didn't actually pay me specifically to leave, but it, you know, it could have gone that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. But basically I I had something, I can't remember what it was, but it's probably something like 250,000 pounds. And this was like 25 years ago. It was a lot of money. And rather than investing it in in a house or, you know, doing some clever stuff with it and enjoying some of it um, as I had previously been, I'd always been quite good at saving. I just decided I'm going to live on this. I'm going to give it away. I'm going to sponsor things. Um, And I was just completely irresponsible with it. And I firmly believed that as soon as I spend the last pound, more will just arrive because I'm special, I'm gifted, you know, I'm kind of almost Messiah-like, you know? Um, so, and the funny thing was, was that was a hypomania. So all that time I was functioning fine. So no one noticed, you know, they just thought, well, you know, he's, he's happy, this, this is great. We're not gonna complain about that. Um, and other things that I would do in, in mania and hypomania is I'd be really mean to people. I'd say very mean things I would, and they were often very kind of intelligently mean that really cut into people. Um, the kind of things that I would never say when I'm well, or when I'm, you know, feeling safe, but, but I would do that. And so a lot of friendships suffered and some, you know, have never recovered. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I I feel that I, it's sometimes I can like almost, almost an out-of-body experience I can like feel like the words are coming out of my mouth but in in my head it's like stop 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 but it's almost like for me it's almost like the release of the words is is more of a relief than when they're like stuck in my body like if that's it's like I have to get it out even though um I feel like we don't have a lot of like uh you know, reflective capacity or a lot of, um, you know, think before you speak, I've always been like that. But with um, hypomania, it's a 50 jillion times worse. And you brought up something really important about hypomania about how um, it's you can function, you just look like you function kind of on a you know, you just look like you're a, a little bit up, right? Or I know that a lot of people were like, wow, you get so much stuff done. Cause I had like babies and I was like rearranging my house in the middle of the night, or I was, I seemed very efficient. Well, when you have like, you know, 10 extra hours because you're not sleeping, you can get a lot of things done. When you're hypomanic or manic, do you, um, like you said, it's that I forget how you explained it, but it's almost like that urge. It's like a for me, it's almost like a a a a, mach- a clog in a machine. Like I'm going and I'm going, and it's pushing me forward to do the things. Um, but I, I, you mentioned that you felt like that. But does everything feel really urgent for you? Like if there's something in your head that you're supposed to do, does it feel urgent?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think I'm someone who things have always felt urgent to me but when I'm you know hypermanic or manic um which I haven't I haven't actually been for the last 8 years touchwood which is great but um it's just things need to be done there's this incredible impatience with people with myself yeah. there's just this it's almost like my my sort of uh, it's almost like the worst parts of my personality get exaggerated and that can be helpful you know I'm I'm sure there are a lot of successful people in the world who are hypermanic. Yeah. Um, it can it can be a really um as as far as success in the in the mainstream is concerned, it can be very useful, but obviously eventually it usually catches up on people. Yeah. And often the 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 casualties are friends, family, loved ones, relationships. Yeah, because those um, are the
0: places that you um let it out the most. And yeah, if you can um, I did an Instagram post the other day about the wild ideas or businesses that you, that people started when hypomanic or manic, and the response was like huge, right? And a lot of us could laugh at some of them now. Um, and they range from like starting these businesses or getting these jobs where they've convinced people they could do it. And they have zero experience to someone wanted to be like a real life pirate and like mm. just these wild ideas. But also I want to, um, I think I'm going to do a follow-up post with what hypomanic ideas like actually worked out because medicated, I can harness some of it and sometimes for good, right? I E the podcast, Julie and I started the podcast because the world shut down and COVID and we had all this extra energy and we wanted to channel it into something. And I know that, um, the only reason if I wasn't medicated, if I was didn't know or didn't have reflective capacity or a team or loved ones around me, I wouldn't have been able to keep it up because I would have jumped to the next idea and the next idea, but we made it sustainable. So it's something like I could keep doing. And when my brain lies to me and says, "Uh, nobody likes it. It's boring. It says, you know stay like keep keep on this um this one thing and if i pour my energy into one thing it can i can do it well instead of 50 other things right yeah i would love okay so you were in this hospital and you got your diagnosis i know in the story um in your book you talked about you had a really bad reaction to a meta medicine that catapulted you into a deep deep depression I would love to hear about that. And you categorize some depressions as well. I would love to hear um, your thoughts on that.
1: Sure, sure. Um, So I I went into this hospital and I I was really manic. I hadn't slept for, I don't know, five or six nights. I wasn't eating. I was just, I thought I'd been put in prison for assaulting a young girl. And so I wouldn't speak to any of the staff for the first two or three days because I thought they were undercover police.
0: Right. Um, so and you didn't, just, you, it, this assault didn't happen at all. You just thought it did.
1: Well, it's very interesting. It didn't happen, but yeah. it started off with me after I'd, I basically met a girl at a swimming pool and I gave her a lift home and, and that was that. But I but I fancied her, you know, and I was 17 at the time. So my yeah. hormones were going pretty crazy. Uh, and I wanted to, to hit on her, you know, yeah. it, it, when I dropped her off, but I didn't, I just, I was too nervous or whatever and then i drove home and and on the way home i started thinking oh my god what if she accuses me of of sexual assault you know what yeah. if uh the police come around what if what if and and i got and at the time there was a lot of stuff about that in the press so i'd obviously picked it up somewhere yeah um, but then over the next few days i started thinking but what if i actually did do it and i started it's like everything started blurring and I, and so i got myself into this horrible mindset where I, one moment, I was really scared of being falsely accused of something. And then the next, I was starting to think, have I actually done it? And are they going to come and arrest me? Yeah. So I went into hospital completely paranoid. Um, and understandably, I think they gave me this medicine called haloperidol, which took me down. But, you know, as we all know, with a lot of psychiatric uh, medication, you know, we never really know the results of it until it's tried on us. You know, it is yeah. clearly an experimental thing uh, from an individual point of view. And so it took me really, really far down, but far further down than I've ever been since. It it took me into what I call a severe depression, which was an experience of nothingness where there was only despair and there was only kind of hatred and malevolence and pain and suffering. There wasn't really even anyone else in existence. It was like I was in a black hole and, and, and no one could rescue me and I was going to be there forever. So it was it was a horrible place. Um, And I was in that place for about two weeks before then they started me on the antidepressants because they had to give a break before they did that. And then for another two weeks, um, I probably went into what I would call like a moderate depression, which is where, you know, you you struggle to get out of bed. Um, I wasn't eating. I think there was a I think there was a two, two and a half week period where I didn't eat anything. And they were going to put me on a a feeder you know force yeah. feed me um but fortunately uh, a friend who's a, a social worker she came and she managed to sort of basically snap me out of it and get me get me eating um but as as the weeks went on the depression started to lift it then went into like a a, a light depression which is much more just feeling that i've got no future life's really crappy but i'm not thinking about suicide i'm not like crying all the time and, and and thinking, you know, everything's over. Yeah. Um, and then probably, I think the last two or three weeks of being in the hospital, I had a really good time because the depression had lifted and the staff were so kind and lovely. And um, I just had a great time and had a lovely time with the other patients as well. So it, it was a cool thing, you know, it was, it's like, it's like everything, you know, we can really, really focus on the bad stuff or we can make sure that we give the good parts, even if they're small, plenty of attention um so that we you know we rewire our brains to start thinking in in a more wholesome way
0: yeah i love that you had i've heard about so many experiences and the ones that are good um you know give me give me so much hope and um yeah i really and also too i want to give a kind of like a blanket statement. When we talk about medications on here, different people have different reactions to things. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try it if your doctor... Um, you know, tells you to. So I just want to say Oliver's experience with those medicines might not be your experience. So please don't be um, afraid or think that we are, you know, bashing certain medications because everybody's chemistry is a little bit different. So I just want to say that because I don't want to influence. We are not medical um, in the medical field at all in that way. Um, Mm -hmm. You talked about those. One of the, Um, So you've talked about the mania and the depression. Um, I would like to, because in the book, oh, actually first there was a part about the depression that I wanted to read. Okay, just to show um, Oliver's great reading, writing. Okay, so I'm just going to read a little paragraph. So it said, A heavy cloak of endless misery was thrown over my head and I became suicidal, loathing myself with every ounce of my being. A fog of despair suffocated me with hopelessness. I just felt that so deeply as it whispered hatred in my ear. I had nothing to live for and no hope that my suffering would ever end. I was caught in the jaws of a medication-induced depression, an indescribably awful place to be. All sense of time vanished, which meant I was trapped in this horrifying experience forever. I had no idea if 10 minutes, three hours, or three days had passed because my mind no longer worked. I couldn't muster any good memories to cheer me or imagine a happy future to look forward to. Just an eternity of pain. I I, I read that like three or four times because I was like, that is such a rich description and beautiful description of something that i've experienced and something um i think it also because depression is thrown around so like i've heard people like say things like I'm so depressed my TV series ended right like we throw it around like that and you know we see okay you know people have a couple days where they can't get out of bed that but I think that that just described how all consuming a major depression can be and um, yeah so thank you for for that for giving language to to something um, that so many of us experienced I just felt completely seen, um, mm-hmm. in that part of the book. Um, the next part that I would love to talk about and you describe it and describe the things that you've seen and, um, the different levels of, cause you experienced psychosis. And could you tell us about that? Tell us some of what that looks like in your life, maybe situations where things happened and why you didn't um, you know, reach out for help during those times or knew, you know, were in a space to even know you needed help. Could you talk to us a little bit about your experiences with psychosis?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, one of the things that I found with bipolar is, and, and again, yeah, this is for me, I'm not, a, I'm not a doctor or anything like that. So I'm just sharing what I've experienced. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I found is that often we don't really know what's going on with us until we've been through an experience. And then either we, we go through it with a psychiatrist or we we just somehow internalize it and, and deal with it or whatever. And so, for example, the first time I experienced a mania, I had no idea that I was going manic. I'd never even heard of mania, never heard of manic depression. I mean, I thought manic depression, you know, was something that, you know, crazy people in a lunatic asylum, you know, in the 1800s experienced. Yeah. I didn't yeah. ever think that would happen to me. Um, but with psychosis, it's, it's very interesting because the first, I guess, the first probably 10 to 15 times that I experienced psychosis, it always crept up on me. You know, it always just started to, to creep into my life as an extension of what I already thought. Um, one of the things that was very common for me with psychosis was there was usually a lot of fear. And so, for example, I remember as a kid, I was very afraid of bears and wolves under my bed. You know, pretty natural thing for a kid to be afraid of, but then as I got into my teenage years and I and I start I, as I started to experience psychosis in my twenties, um, I noticed that just small things like um, uh, being afraid of being being run over or being afraid of being mugged or being afraid of getting cancer started to become more prevalent in my thinking, um, and and with this at, at the start of my psychosis episodes, I guess this was probably in my my twenties, I think they were just what I call thought-based psychosis and thought-based psychosis are basically stories in our head that we tell ourselves. Um, now pretty much everyone on the planet has stories in our head that we tell ourselves, but the difference with a psychosis is when it really becomes reality Mm. and and we can't sit back and either observe it happening, you know, watch our mind going or talk to someone about it, you know? Um, so for example, um, for, for me i started getting worried about vampires and werewolves around um halloween and i often had a psychosis around that time um but at the start the first two or three years it happened i i never sort of told anyone because it was real and it was terrifying and i was almost sort of struck dumb yeah. by by the experience but then once i realized I, I obviously ended up on antipsychotics, and i stabilized and then you know year, year four five six if, if I even started to get a hint of a weird thought about vampires, I would just say to my wife, look, I just had a couple of weird thoughts. I'm going to give it a day. And if they continue, I'm, I'm taking the antipsychotic
0: Yeah,
1: um, because that was the agreement I had with my psychiatrist and, and it worked really well. Um, and so I guess what I would say about a psychosis is it can be an obsessive uh, story or thought patterns about almost anything that we really believe and and starts to warp our, our um our way the way we see the world in, in a way that is often very unhealthy and in a way that removes us from the normal if you like you know or the atypical or the typical sorry yeah
0: yeah yeah that's what i would say wow wow and then you actually experience like you're in this world but you actually experience like hallucinate like you see things right and um, you actually react to these things you see that aren't there. Or um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Because there was um, some stories in there that I was just uh, fascinated by about the seeing things and engaging with, um, you know, like creatures and things and just, um, yeah, telling you to do, to do certain things and how um, I know there was one just that you almost like jumped out of a just randomly out of a space in your house, like almost jumped out, and your wife had to grab you. But could you tell us a little bit about what that, like, what you saw, or a scenario, or 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 something? If that's not triggering to you,
1: no, no, I'm very relaxed about all this stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um. Well, th- there came a point about I think it's probably about 13 years ago where um I- I've been on lithium for for basically I think about 35 years, something like that. Um, And it's worked very well for me as far as the illness is concerned. But after I'd been on it for about 15 to 20 years, um, the side effects were getting very bad for me. They're getting more and more intense, you know, um, a lot of, I won't go into them, it's boring, but but I was really suffering. I, I couldn't really function, I couldn't hold on a job, I was tired all the time, lots of headaches, that kind of thing. Um, and you know it's different for everyone some people don't have any side effects on lithium yeah. but that was that was my experience um and so i got to this place where i thought i i've got to i've got to try and come off it you know and and i had been meditating not not medicating but meditating yeah. for a year or two and, and i was fairly sure that with meditation i could come off my meds you know that was kind of the story i was telling myself yeah. um i don't think that's true i've never seen anyone do it but at the time i thought it was yeah um and so long story short, I took about two and a half years, uh, to come off lithium. And, uh, so I thought I was being very responsible. I was doing extremely slowly, but I didn't have a psychiatrist. I I'd, I'd tried before with the help of a psychiatrist, but it didn't work out. And then I got annoyed with them and, you know, closed the door.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: So yeah, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this. Yeah. And, um, so I ended up basically trying to do it myself, you know, just with the help of a few people around me and, um, Again, I thought I was being responsible. You know, we had other healers involved. It wasn't. It wasn't like oh, I'll just stop taking my meds today. Kind of scenario. Yeah. But looking back, it was extremely foolhardy um, because I didn't have like the proper psychiatric support, which is which is so necessary, particularly if something goes wrong. You know, then they can hopefully get straight into hospital, or you know, they kind of know yeah.
0: what's. Yeah. Um, was this it, you were involved with um, a lot of like? natural paths and you were like heavily influenced by I think you went on a yoga retreat or 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 something like that which uh, you know I a lot of those things like help as a side right as in addition to I'm not slamming it but I too I was really fascinated with that because I too have been drawn in and convinced by some folks in you know in the realm of naturopaths Um, And those kinds of like healing, like remedies and that kind of thing that have, you know, uh, I feel like we're very vulnerable because we want to get rid of the side effects. And because, you know, um, when we uh, commit to something, we're all in. I know that I have almost went off medication or believed that I could be because I was only being influenced by that world. And I thought it was really... Really um, interesting that that you were influenced by that too. So not only did you not have a psychiatrist, the main um, influencers in your life were all natural um, in the natural healing world. So I thought that that was really interesting. Sorry, I want you to keep going.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. No, it is very interesting. You know, I have gained so much from the meditation that I practice. It's it's called the the Shire's Ascension. It's taught by the bright path. That's what I do. Yeah. And it has been amazing for me. And I've met some lovely people and a lot of my closest friends and, and people who I really love and respect yeah. uh, practice it. and They teach it. You know, I'm a teacher of it, too. I have been for, for 20 years. Um, but having said that, there is something about spiritual organizations that often supports. And it's not necessarily even the, the intention of the organization, but there's a lot of people in the organization who, First of all, they have this huge distrust of medication, and particularly psychiatric medication. And secondly, many of them seem to know the answer to it. They seem to be absolutely convinced that they know, "Oh, if you do this, you won't need your medication. Now, from what I've seen, almost all of them are wrong from what I've seen, uh, and a lot of it is, comes from just, well, meaning well, but a lot of it comes from picking up these concepts that that somehow we can do without psychiatric medication, you know? Now, I'm sure there are people who can do without psychiatric medication. Um, I think I've met one and she told me just how hard it was actually to do it. But she she said the drugs didn't work for us. So this is how she lives. She doesn't live particularly well, but, you know, she lives. Um, yeah. And I'm not I'm not for or against medication. I'm I'm about being practical and uh, and as safe as we can be, you know. And, and, and if we do decide to do anything, we do it with the proper help. Yes. Um. But basically, I just picked up this idea. It's like, you know, if I keep meditating, my brain will get calm, all the all the thoughts will disappear, all those emotions, I'll be all right, you know, and it was a disaster. And and coming off lithium was particularly bad for me, because I had this, I'd been on it for 20 years. So I had this huge reaction, I didn't just have the bipolar flaring up, but I had the, whether you call it withdrawals, whether you call it detoxing whatever it is but that was when i experienced the crazy psychoses and, and living in different dimensions and things like that um, which i don't think are typical of bipolar i do think that they happen because i'd come off my meds and 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 i and i'd been on them for so long i needed them
0: yeah yeah
1: that's my interpretation yeah yeah
0: yeah that's that's fascinating and like you said you took the time and it and it still um still didn't work and i yeah, it's interesting. I, I always have like a distrust of someone that says like, I know that uses like the word cure, right? Mm -hmm. Cause I know that it took me years and I guess that's a part of me befriending my bipolar is under, even though it sounds like it wouldn't be comforting, knowing that it is like chronic and incurable helped me, um, stop trying to find a cure and more, um, looking at how I could work alongside, um, my symptoms or, um, you know, just try to manage the best, the best I can, because I think, um, I think I spent a lot of time and it gave me a lot of heartache thinking that I could get rid of all of it. And that if I was, a, you know, even if I still had the thoughts, I was failing, uh, you know, there, you know, you, there was this magic place that I could could get to. And once I didn't have the focus on that, or I know a lot of us and a lot of questions I get is how long will I be on meds? You know, all, all of, you know, how all, like a goal, right? And I tell folks like, because of how um, stable or more manageable my my bipolar is on meds, I will take it forever if need be. Right. Mm -hmm. And once I was able to release that more, um, you know, healing, I call it a healing journey because we're always healing and it's A lot of times with bipolar, it's like, you know, uh, two steps forward, seven back, depending on where you're at. Um, I don't know. That was kind of kind of freeing to me. So in the book, so was that the first time? Because I know you tried to come off lithium more than once, correct? Yeah, the
1: first time time I came off, I ended up in a a mental hospital in uh, Australia
0: yeah
1: that didn't go well and then i think i tried it once more and then then there was the big time that essentially essentially i i lost like four years of my life it was just it was really bad because i got into that mindset that you were talking about where i was sure if i just kept going i could do it and and i kept being assured by these sort of health people that if you just keep going if you just keep going and um it was a really a horrible experience yeah. And and ultimately, I mean, the only really good thing that came of it was, I I gave in to being bipolar. I gave in to being on medication, and I accepted it. And yeah. like you said, then uh, in in accepting it, all this cool stuff started coming that that didn't cure me. It didn't you know get me off meds or anything like that. But it made life easier and better, yeah. um, and 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 allowed me to to experience a lot of a lot of peace with it, you yeah. know. And and now I have. Uh, I still have a lot of struggles physically. You know, uh, concentrating is difficult. I get a lot of headaches. Uh, I'm tired a lot of the time. Um, but primarily because of the experiences I've been through and also because of meditation, I've managed to, to find peace. And I've kind of let go of the really ambitious Ollie and, and the one who has to find a cure and has to change things. And, you know, almost like the, the activist part of me has just chilled. And so now I live what I think is a fantastic life, just pottering about, doing a bit of work here and there, not doing too much, getting out in nature, you know, just really wholesome stuff, um, which I would have hated when I was 20 because I'd have thought it was so boring.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. You're always reaching for the excitement. I know I struggle with this idea of wanting to be, even when I'm, you know, euthymic or symptom-free, Just, I just want to be there's this underlying thing that I want to be like extraordinary or I want to leave my, you know, this beautiful mark on the, the world. I want to, you know, um, like fight for a lot of uh, human rights uh, things, which I do. I do go to marches and I, I do things, but I just feel I, I get stuck sometimes and actually I've noticed it creeping in again, these thoughts, um, just that I'm wasting potential, right? Because a lot of times I've had to really rewire my brain with this. A lot of times, um, I think you know I get caught up in capitalism and the production of things, right? Producing and and being efficient and those um, types of things. I get so caught up in that's what I should be doing, and I noticed that I was comparing what I was doing now that felt like not a lot to mm-hmm. what I could do when I was hypomanic and you cannot compare those, right? Because you're doing those things unwell, right? So what you're saying, you're choosing simple and wellness over this striving, which I think is, um, yeah, it's really, really, really beautiful. And I love that so much. Well, um,
1: I, I have a perspective on that. Yes, um, tell me. So in in this world we're very much we're very much taught that thoughts and uh, not thoughts that um words and action are really really important. That's what we're taught. And if you look at anyone who is perceived as a success in almost any area they're doing they're doing 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 and yes. Yes. I I follow a lot of rugby and I know they they love their rugby in Canada but um you listen to the professional sports, sportsmen and women, and it's all about doing and doing. And you know, if you train really hard and that, that it's yeah. like a, it's like an epidemic in, a, in the Western world, you know, as, as long as I'm working really hard, I'm safe. You know, yeah. it doesn't really matter if I'm achieving or not, as long as I'm, you know, busting myself. Yeah. Um, but what I've discovered over the years is that um, who I am and who you are is much more important than what you do. Yes. And, and that might sound strange because you think, well, I could just sit around on the sofa all day and, and be a nice person. That's not going to really help anyone. Uh, and I would say two things to that. I would say, firstly, you probably won't sit around on the sofa all day. You probably will engage in things. But if we engage in things from a place of peace and acceptance, we have much more power. I think it was I think it was Mother Teresa who was asked to go on some anti-war demonstration or anti-war talk or something. And she turned to the person very intensely and said, I will never go on an anti-war march, um, but if you show me a pro-peace one, then I'll go on that. Yeah. And so she used her own internal state, which was a very wise, peaceful internal state, to recognize that fighting against things essentially is a waste of time, whereas moving towards something or, or, or encouraging people to more, towards to move towards something more positive, I feel is much more productive in the long term and and you make fewer enemies and also you don't sort of exhaust yourself you know we're we're trained to we're trained to see something wrong in the world and wrong in our lives and wrong in ourselves like it's it's beneath every emotional suffering experience we have and I'm not talking about when we're ill now I'm talking about when we're stable but if you look at the bottom of any uh, problem you have anything that makes you feel sad or suffer or whatever you want to change it yeah. It's wrong. It's wrong that this has happened. And and when we start to find more peace and we start to realize that life has an agenda of its own and we don't necessarily know what it is. Yeah. And when we align with that, then I think we can really, really make a difference. And primarily it's because we're not invested in whether we're successful or not. Yeah. So we might go on the the peace march. But if we don't create peace wherever it is, that's OK. That's life.
0: Yeah. Yeah yeah wow that's powerful um i was thinking about uh, about that um about you know moving towards towards peace and i i was just thinking about how yeah just how much more vulnerable we are to getting lost in these thought patterns right getting lost in the in the negative thought patterns in fact like even i have a, a, like every Uh, you know, adverse child experience. And I didn't have a super traumatic, big T traumatic um, childhood, but I remember all the hard things. I remember like, if, if I was just to talk about a lot of the things that I remembered, it would sound like a terrible childhood because that was how the lens in which I saw it through. And now like, I've asked my mother and I've asked my brothers, like, tell me about the good times, or I dig deep and remember, that, you know, that horrible incident that happened that one year or whatever, I'll hold on to that. Whereas 12 other experiences were beautiful, right? And so just, uh, I can, I love the way you talk about it because you're not talking about it in a, a toxically positive way, right? Like you're not saying there's a silver lining to everything terrible. You're saying, um, you know, where we put our focus and our energy and our thoughts, Um could be more in a place of peace and wholeness and and we really can rewire our brains i remember when i thought my psychiatrist was a little um uninformed i was convinced when she talked about how we can trick our brains even if you know we aren't there yet or we don't feel peaceful yet or we don't experience it yet, you can tell your brain. And I guess that's why things like affirmations or um, other things like that actually really do help and really do rewire. And I remember she made me do this activity where I just had to laugh. And I was like, this is ridiculous. I am not doing this. Okay, I guess. And um, it's, it's just interesting that when you you make yourself laugh, I don't know. It's a, it's a body experience. It's like, you're tricking yourself um, into, into something, but yeah. So that's a really, a really beautiful perspective. And probably you wouldn't, (laughs) you probably wouldn't have been able to write your book if you hadn't, um, you know, hadn't been able to be on your medication or doing the things or having that focus. I'd love to hear. I know that there are a ton of us and sometimes I get convinced too and it is for some of us it is not for some of us but for the people that are well and want to pursue um uh writing a book do you have any like tips or how did it work you know work for you and also what was the underlying great hope that you had for putting this book into the world
1: wow what a question um,
0: <laughs> Just some well, questions.
1: yeah, well, yeah, I mean, first of all, I don't think that there's a way to write a book. I don't think there's like a secret formula that I think a lot of writers are looking for. Right. Um, I think that either if, if you stumble across a way of writing that from a course or, or you hear someone talk about it, that's great if it works for you. But for a lot of people, I think it's about starting to write Because when we start a project and and it's no longer just thoughts in our head, but we actually start doing something to move towards it, no matter how good or poor our writing is, we are sort of saying to life, look, I mean this, I'm actually doing this. And so often that will catalyze help from around the place that will actually then end up creating a great book. Um, My experience with my book in a funny way was, and this sounds a bit spiritual, whatever, but... um, I didn't necessarily feel I really wrote it. I felt that it much more wrote itself. Wow. Um, and the reason for that was, was because I was very kind of open throughout the whole, whole process to me being wrong about stuff because, you know, I'm writing a lot of memories from 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember what I did yesterday. So <laughs> so I had to check with a lot, of, a lot of people. I had to run things past my family, my wife and get their feedback and they would throw things in. And I was just very attentive to what they said. And then I would sort of put that in the book. Um, and then I think it was three or four of my friends and my wife offered to edit it, uh, which I think was very lucky considering my grammar and spelling. Um, and that was kind of a way of life supporting the project as well. And I could have said, no, no, I'll be fine. I'll run it through Grammarly or whatever. Yeah. But instead, I could have took it because I saw it as a way of including more people in the project. Okay. Um, and so when I started writing the book, I think the odd paragraph or two was really good. It was really kind of like, I wasn't thinking I was just writing, you know, it's coming through me. And then a lot of the book was just useless. Um, And quite a lot of the book was me ranting because I was so angry about what I'd experienced. And I was blaming a lot of people. And I remember thinking to myself when I was writing that I sort of probably shouldn't be writing some of this, you know, I wouldn't want to, 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 um, sell someone down the river—that's not a cool thing to do, yeah. you know. Um, but then I just thought to myself, I'm going to write it, and then when I'm done with it, I'm going to delete it. You know, I don't—I'm not going to put out a horrible book. I want to put out something that's fair and kind. Um, and so I did that, and so there were all these different processes happening at once, and and so all I really did to write the book was sort of start writing and keep going, and not get too caught up on it being perfect. Nice. Um, I have a feeling that in a lot of the Western world are perfectionists. I mean, it's ridiculous yep. how, how we are, but I have a feeling that a lot of bipolar people, maybe a higher percentage of people with bipolar are perfectionists. And sometimes that perfectionism can almost bring the, the, the illness out the first time it can be the stress, you know, we have to, you know, we have to. Um, and so the tendency for a lot of perfectionists and, and I'm certainly one of them uh, is to just keep procrastinating over the first chapter but I made sure I didn't do that. I made sure I wrote the book and then I went through it again and I went through it once more and then it was done. Um, But getting other people's input, talking about it was really helpful. I didn't want it to be a a solo project, even though writing a book sounds like a solo project.
0: Yeah. 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 I love that. And I think too, like the, you're right, the stream of consciousness, you'll get to the, it might take you, you might have, A lot of my writer friends say like maybe they have like 10, 11 pages, which will turn out to be one or two, right? Because you just get it out. And I know some of them had one of the tips that they gave me is a couple of my really beautiful writing friends um, do this thing called morning pages. doesn't matter specifically if you do it in the morning, but they just empty out their brain all all the things right out in their brain. And sometimes like the few times I've done it, um, you know, you can pick out the nugget, right? You can pick out the 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 truth there. And um, I know that for me, I can't sit and do long writing. So I um, spend a lot of time, right? Because I was like, I'm never a writer, I couldn't do this. And I remember my friends like, look at your Instagram posts. That's an idea for a chapter. And I was like, oh, so I do it in small, um, small sections and small um, amounts. But what I do, even with Instagram, and people probably notice half the time, the grammar or the spelling, because if I don't just press post, I'm never going to put it out there. And I'm going to spend the whole day Right, And sometimes I go back and I'm like, oh my gosh, and I fix it or whatever. But if I don't just put something out there, or have that movement forward, it it paralyzes me. And another thing is, if you're someone that, you know, can't sit and write for long periods of time, I record, I record my like I voice record. Um, a lot of things. And then some of them, I have an app called Marco Polo, where it's videos back and forth to your friends. So they can look at it whenever they want, which is helpful when there's people in different time zones. And because the person isn't talking back to you in that moment, you're just getting all your stuff out. Right. And so then I have a couple of friends that are like, oh, you had a really good point here. And so yeah, I agree with you to just get it all out and definitely have Um, other people look over it and I love what you said about it being you know kind and good I love
1: that one thing I did that that you you just reminded me when you were talking one thing I did which is really fun was I would dress up we've got in in Oslo where I live we've we've got this really really nice cafe it's really posh they've got like a grand, grand piano and it's great you know anyone can go in there but it's just really posh it's like from the 1800s colonial British, you know, that's what it looks like with palm trees and everything. And um, and what I decided to do, and this will make you laugh, was I decided to dress up. I had this like nice tweed jacket, and I decided to wear nice trousers and and, and smart shoes. And I would go down there with my laptop, and I would sit there as a writer, <laughs> yeah. and I would write. And it was an order of hot chocolate because I love hot chocolate. And it was so much fun and it definitely helped. It was like, I was kind of pretending I'm a writer. Of course I am. Obviously you're gonna laugh at yourself, so yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: I look like a writer, therefore I write. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I love it. And you know what, and how, what a beautiful way to make things like fun, right? Like that's one of my, I don't do resolutions, but one of my, you know, kind of focuses is that I want to like, we forget about fun. And play and laughter and about how um how healing that is. I am convinced that folks with mental illness, mental health disorders are like some of the funniest folks I know, right? Uh it, it's just because what else, what else can we do sometimes, right? And so I love that you did that. So, yes, if you see a bunch of people really dressed up in writing, you just encourage them. Go writer. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, Before we end this part of our interview, um, I wanted to hear about your other book. And then we are going to wrap up this interview and we are going to go into the exclusive content and I'm going to get Oliver to go deeper. He has Um, just some really good I think there's like 17 really good beautiful points about how he has and possibly how we could befriend our bipolar and we're not going to give all of them away because I want you to buy and read the book but before we do that tell us about the other book so I can get excited and order that and read it
1: yeah well it's cool what you say about humor because humor is a massive part of my life I I think one of the secrets to happiness to, is to learn to laugh at ourselves and, and also other people as well. Yeah. Um, I do think for some reason these days, the world is getting far too serious. And oh, we take too,
0: ourselves so seriously.
1: Far too worried about what we say. <laughs> yes. So I, I, I tend to push the envelope in that respect. Um, <laughs> but anyway, my book is called, it's called The Broker Who Broke Free. And it's my story of going from being like a, a sales trader in two sort of top American investment banks and just having a bit of a disaster, hating it, wrong place for me. Um, my idea was if I make uh, loads of money in the first 10 years, then I can buy a place in Thailand and I'll be at peace, you know, live on there. The, yeah, on the... Yeah. problem with that is that we carry our heads with us. And so that, that actually doesn't work. Um, <laughs> it sounds nice. But anyway, long story short, I then uh, I left the bank and felt great because I was relieved. But about six weeks later, my mind started coming up with the same thoughts, the same stress. It's like it wasn't as intense, but I was like, oh, God, I feel empty again. I'm not happy. So I went to see this guy uh, who was giving me a shiatsu massage. And he kept telling me all about the Shire's Ascension, this meditation that he practiced. Didn't have a clue what he's talking about. I had I was so far from spirituality. You couldn't even believe it. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm a trader in London, I'm way too quick to meditate, there's no way, this is, this is nonsense, don't want to do this. Um, anyway, then I had, uh, so, so I shook his hand and very bravely said to him, oh yeah, I'll, I'll look up that meditation, whilst thinking, no way, <laughs> and um, very heroic, eh? Yeah. And then uh, for, for, uh, for probably in the next five months, I think, I had four, what I call brushes with death in the book. So I got into some serious trouble, Um, I won't tell you what those were, because then you might actually buy the book. Um, But then, long story short, I decided after the last one, I had this, like, awareness of, like, somehow I'm contributing to this chaos. You know, I've got to try and calm my mind. And uh, I learned to ascend and and loved it, and it's been very good for me. And so then I became a a teacher, and and that was kind of that. But the book itself is, it's lighthearted, and and I think it's, you know, it's well written. It's, God, it took me a long time to write it, but... um, (laughs) but it's kind of i like it because it's lighthearted it's fun it's a good story really good story yes. but also there's a seriously profound message in it mm-hmm. and and the and the message is you know even with bipolar is is it's kind of how to find peace you know yeah. and so that i think is is very important so it's fun it's a bit like me it's got the odd mm-hmm. the odd good thing comes out of my mouth but mainly i just giggle
0: i love it i love it i'm excited i'm excited to read it and i'm excited in our uh, next segment to um to hear more about about the yoga and the type of yoga and the meditation that, that you do, I think that would be really helpful to a lot of folks. As we wrap up, I was wondering if there was something um, comforting that you could say to someone that was seeing themselves in your story. Maybe they haven't befriended their bipolar. Maybe they are in the depths and the cloak of of depression is there something that you you would say to comfort somebody today
1: yeah i would say if someone's having a really hard time i would say ask for help and keep asking for help until you get good help Mm. Um, i think that's super super important you know when we're ill Um, and sometimes and it's not the easiest thing to do you know for some people um but but ask for help you know don't don't keep it to yourself and try and just sort of get through it Um, and for people who are stable and well, um, I would say don't if you if you if you haven't accepted bipolar, don't force it.
0: Mm. It
1: took me a long time to do it, and it kind of just happened by itself. It, well, it didn't happen because I was clever or anything like that. It kind of just happened. So I would say, yeah, don't don't force it and just yeah, do your best to just enjoy your life the way it is and and often when we stop really pushing to change our life often things do get better
0: yeah yeah that's true i heard this term that was beautiful um it reminded me i heard this term um called glimmers and it's this idea that it's the opposite of triggers and so uh, looking for the glimmers and one i love the word and that idea of you know something shiny or something to look at and it could be as simple as you know uh, your latte or maybe yesterday one of my glimmers was I have a little fluffy dog and he's like really quiet when he sleeps or anything and yesterday he was snoring and it was the most I even videoed it I was like my dog is snoring and I was like this is a glimmer and I just know I used to roll my eyes at like gratefulness and how you know how could that possibly help me bipolar is such a huge um, issue how could these small things and then when I finally started listening when I was a little bit calmer um, looking for those glimmers uh, really 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 help and I can hold on to those instead of holding on to all the hard things so yes I I love that you can't force like this is my beautiful best friend bipolar some days, right? But you can say, you know, here's a here's a glimmer that I'm going to hold on to. And one thing you write in the book and one thing I know is that things always change and we aren't, it isn't always going to be like this. And I don't know when or how for some folks, but I do know that there are definitely better days.
1: Yeah. And, well, and just quickly, can I quickly just say- You
0: can quickly say whatever you'd like
1: thanks um like i think that one of the reasons why your podcast is so successful i think actually the primary reason is because i think you have so much love and compassion and it just comes out when you talk to people and when you share and whatever and you know it's one thing to be super super active in social media and do all the clever stuff Mm -hmm. but it's completely different if someone has real integrity and they keep going and they come from a place of of love basically a goodness then Eventually you know, they might they might get success a little bit slower sometimes, but the long-term success I think is 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 almost guaranteed, I would say. So I just want to say thank you. Good on you. And I've really enjoyed being interviewed by by you.
0: Oh, thank you. That that really means a lot. That really really means a lot and your your love shines through in the book and actually there's a whole section on love and how love is transforming and how even a medical health professionals could could love and um yeah you'll have to read the book to hear about that because that really really touched my heart because we're always looking to fix and strategies and you know sometimes just trying to love ourselves or finding Um, you know, other folks to, to love. And so thank you for all you do. Thank you for putting yourself out there, never giving up. And just, I think that your, I really think that your book and your books, I'm going to read the next one, um, just really are saving lives. I I believe that. I I think that just sharing your experience, you're so honest and, and I appreciate that. So thank Mm -hmm. you. And you. Stay come join us um, in the subscriptions to hear the next part because I love hearing even more about how um, how we can be befriend our bipolar because it's it's so powerful and important so thank you thank you this is bipolar thanks again for tuning in you can find video versions of this is bipolar on our youtube channel We also have all our previous and soon to be future episodes of the podcast on Apple, Podbean, Spotify and Google Play. We spend most of our time on Instagram at this.is.bipolar. There is a vibrant community there where we have conversations and post different ideas and different strategies and we'd just love for you to join us there it is so helpful if you enjoy our work or think it would be helpful to someone if you could like and share and save and follow us in all or any of those spaces if you're a listener for the podcast if you could leave a review we would be forever grateful again thank you for being here with us let's get the word out let's share lived experiences so that we can change the ideas that people have about bipolar and help those of us that live with it feel less alone. This is Bipolar.